Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 8. We are in Acts chapter 8 as we continue our look at the early church in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus, learning from their trials and learning from their triumphs. And for the past couple of weeks, we have been in Acts 6 and 7, where the persecution against the church has intensified and it focuses on Stephen, who was uncompromisingly preaching the gospel. And we saw how the Jewish religious leaders, jealous of the growing influence of the church, are protective of their own position and power, and they put Stephen on trial for blasphemy. They declare him guilty, and they stone him to death. And one of the leaders of this persecution was a young religious fanatic named Saul. We'll have a lot more to say about him in about two weeks. But uh, if you're there in chapter 8, you can look at how the chapter begins. It says that Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Uh, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. One of the big lessons that we're learning in the book of Acts is that not everyone in the world will be favorable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, The last thing that sinful man in his stubborn desire to be Lord wants to hear is a message that says that you're not Lord, Jesus is Lord, you've rebelled against him, you've killed him, he's alive, and you are in danger of his wrath unless you submit to him as Lord. And no sinner naturally wants to hear that kind of message. Not then, not now. And so Stephen stands as first in a long line of many more who will spill their blood for the gospel. On the other hand, the other big lesson in Acts is that Jesus Christ and his gospel will triumph. The dark forces that despise Jesus and the church fight in vain. And in the wake of Stephen's martyrdom, we read in Acts 8-4 that those who scattered went about preaching the word. These these scattered believers weren't just hiding in caves somewhere and and staying under the radar and keeping their heads down low. Wherever they went, they they were preaching the word, which begins a 2,000-year-long pattern where the more the devil and the forces of darkness try to stop and stamp out the church, the more the church ultimately grows and even thrives. And is this not what Jesus said would happen? And remember, Jesus said that... I will build my church. I will build my church. It's a promise. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he also said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And after taking root in Jerusalem and Judea, we see in Acts 8 now the gospel advancing into Samaria, spearheaded by Philip. Now, Philip, we met back in um, chapter 6. Philip uh, was, uh, along with Stephen and some other men, he was one of those deacons uh, in the Jerusalem church that were helping to care for the widows in their congregation. And verse 5 says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. But as the gospel takes root in Samaria and more people hear about Jesus, that creates more potential problems. And in today's text, we encounter yet another challenge and threat to the early church. It's something that, that um, is a huge problem really in America today, and, and every local church needs to be mindful of it. And this threat is found in an individual we're going to meet in Acts 8 known as Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer. So let's meet him together. Let's see what we might learn from his account. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our great and glorious God. This is Acts chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 9 and read on down through verse 25. Luke writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there was a man named Simon 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time. He had uh, had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning uh, as we take a close look at a, a very interesting text uh, with some challenges that, that come to it, Father. So I pray that by the Holy Spirit, the, the same Holy Spirit that inspired this text, that that Holy Spirit now would illuminate the text and uh, help us to see and hear what you would have to say and communicate to Harbin's Church this morning. And, and thank you, thank you for the gift of your word. You are not silent. You speak. So help your servants to hear and listen. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Counterfeit money. I was a little surprised to discover the other day that this really is still a thing that people try to get away with. I I read several stories like happening in different pockets of the country of of, of counterfeit money floating around in places like Wisconsin and Oregon and, and, and Utah. And in one of those articles, I was looking at a, at a counterfeit $20 bill. Can you put that up on the screen? Yeah, counterfeit $20 bill has been floating around out there and looked pretty authentic to me, um, but something was off. Can, can, you, can, you, can you see what's off about this thing? I, anyone want to guess? Okay, y'all are like way more observant than I am. I'm like a, I'm like a fool and a sucker. Uh, Rosalind's waving her, wait, oh, Rosalind, go ahead, what is it? Oh, it doesn't say in God we trust. Well, that would be on the back. There's actually another problem with this, Bill. Most of you have gotten it already. It's on the top. It says, for motion picture use only. This was actually being like spent as legit money and people were actually accepting it. Probably all, all of the, 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 you know, the, the store clerks and folks had the same observation skills as Deemer, obviously, because it took me a while to, to figure that out. Actually, the article had to tell me what was wrong with it, so that's embarrassing. I'll never be a bank teller. Um, <laughs> counterfeit money can look really impressive. Um, uh, at first glance, it seems to have all the things that you would expect from genuine money. Maybe for a time, it can pose as authentic But then when you take another look, when you take a closer look, you're like, wait a minute, something is not quite right about this. Something is off. And sooner or later, counterfeit money uh, is exposed as fake, as worthless, as good for nothing. And, and And the penalty for being criminally involved in counterfeit money can be very serious. Well, in Acts 8, we encounter 
something that we could call counterfeit Christianity. Uh, It's a Christianity that at first glance has some things that you would expect to see from genuine Christians. They look promising and impressive from one angle, but take another look and something's off. Something's not quite right. And it turns out that their Christianity is counterfeit and it's absolutely worthless. It's good for nothing. What's more, should one persist on the path of counterfeit Christianity, the penalty is severe. So it's real important to be able to discern the difference between the counterfeit and the real thing. And this problem with counterfeit Christianity is nothing new. Uh, We see it starting 2,000 years ago with this man, Simon. You can feel free to take that picture off. I think people are like really like interested in that money right now. (laughs) We meet, we meet Simon who is a, yeah, you want to get like people's attention, just flash money, even fake money. (laughs) So we meet this man, Simon, who was a, uh, who was a magician. Uh, He was a sorcerer. And magic in the first century was commonly practiced. It was a, it was a big deal, and it was uh, uh, it had the magic was practiced with the goal of all kinds of things, everything from healing diseases to bestowing blessings and cursing, or maybe getting protection from curses, uh, protection from demons. Uh, magic would have involved uh, secret incantations and performing rituals to tap into power, to acquire power, using physical objects like amulets and, and figurines to, to, uh, to access that power. Now, with this guy Simon, it's not clear whether he was actually in touch with evil supernatural powers or whether he was just a really good illusionist. Like, you, you, you see guys on TV today, and they don't have, like, powers, but boy, they look like it. They're, they're really good with, with tricks. Maybe have been that. Maybe he was a, an illusionist with just a really magnetic, charismatic personality, and he was able to sway the people. But what, whatever Simon was doing, he was really good at it. And, he, and, and also, he was an egomaniac, seeking lots of glory for himself. Verse 9 says that he amazed the people of Samaria, saying, saying that he himself was somebody great. I think it's funny here. It's not just that people were saying that he was great. He was saying that he was great. He was publishing these press releases, and people were believing them. You never believe somebody's own press. So it's not a good idea, but, but people were getting caught up in this. Simon thought that he was awesome, and he said so. Simon loved to be in the spotlight, and his plan to be at the center of attention work, verse 10, they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest. And they were saying, this man is the power of God, called great, great Simon. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. So Simon was living large. He was soaking it all in. He was the big man on campus in, on Samaria, in Samaria and, and probably raking in lots of cash at the same time. People were totally amazed and enthralled by Simon until Philip comes along with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think verse 9 says Simon previously practice magic. Before the gospel came to Samaria, Simon was the man. But after the gospel took hold, Simon was out of business. And verse 11, it says, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And then in verse 12, it says, but, that's an important word there, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon impressed folks with displays of power, and, and, and power is accompanying Philip's gospel, his, his, Philip's preaching. Uh, but there was one thing that Philip could offer that Simon could not, and that was forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the people were hungry for it. Men and women were being baptized, which means they're no longer paying attention to Simon they've turned to Christ instead. They're paying attention to who they should be paying attention to. And at first, it seems that Simon is embracing Christ as well. Verse 13 says, Simon believes, and Simon is baptized. The problem is that Simon wasn't a real believer. We know this not only from Simon's behavior in the story, but also through Peter's reaction to Simon's request. It's interesting how Peter responds, right? Peter doesn't say, now Simon, I know you're a new Christian, you're immature, or you're a carnal Christian, 
uh, you're, you're, you're probably confused about some things, so let's just start meeting together for some discipleship lessons and accountability. Let's go through this book together and we'll be fine. Instead, he says, may your silver perish with you. It's not very seeker friendly, by the way. Peter is talking about perishing here in the sense of judgment. Basically, he's saying, Simon, to hell with you and your silver. That would be a legitimate way of translating that. To hell with you and your silver, or may your silver go to hell along with you. Peter says in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Part or lot in this matter. That's, that's Old Testament kind of language that, that speaks of inheritance. You have people being saved. You have people receiving the Holy Spirit. You have people experiencing the blessings of God. And Peter turns to Simon and says, this is not your inheritance. You, you have no part in any of this. You can't be a part of this church. Your inheritance, unless you repent, is hell. Because, verse 21, your heart is not right before God. Literally, uh, your heart is not straight before God. Simon's heart is crooked. And finally, look at Peter's warning in verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's a pretty terrifying indictment on Simon. It's a pretty sobering warning to us today. There is a such thing as counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity is real. It it's, it's, leads to destruction. And in Simon, we see the marks of counterfeit Christianity. And the first mark that we see of counterfeit Christianity is having a belief that does not save. Having a belief that does not save. Verse 13 tells us that even Simon himself believed. And yet, Peter tells Simon he's going to hell. <laughs> That's shocking. Especially when you consider that all over the Bible, texts say belief saves from hell. For example, Acts 16.30, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or Romans 1 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Nevertheless, Peter turns to believing Simon and says, may your silver go to hell with you. While there is a belief that saves, there's also a type of belief, you could call it a counterfeit belief, that does not save. We, we see this also in the Bible. Well, it's actually a reoccurring theme in the, in the Gospel of John. For example, in John 2, uh, it says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they believed Jesus... But Jesus didn't believe them. You have people there hearing the word and seeing signs and wonders, just like Simon heard the word and saw signs and wonders. And in response, they believe as Simon believes, but Jesus did not accept their belief as genuine. Why? Because it says in John 2, he knew all people, he knew it was in man, which means that he could see in their hearts. (laughs) And notice What Peter says to Simon in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So non-saving, worthless, counterfeit belief is a superficial, shallow belief that doesn't sink deep into the heart and doesn't actually produce godly change. On the other hand, real Saving faith is a faith that sinks deep into the heart, and then what's in your heart actually comes out and affects what you do on the outside. Jesus said in Matthew 7, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them... You'll know them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So if someone truly has Jesus in their hearts, then the kind of fruit that will come forward is Jesus' fruit. It's, it's a life that looks Jesus-like. Not, not a perfect life, but a life that is bearing resemblance more and more to Christ. On the other hand, if there is zero Jesus fruit in someone's life, if a person, person's life has no semblance to Jesus, that gives you a red flag in regards to, to what is happening in their heart. We can't see into the heart like Jesus can, but we can certainly see the fruit, and that tells us some things. The Bible says that true, genuine, saving faith actually transforms lives. But think about this. Maybe you know people who say they believe in God, they believe in the gospel, they believe in Jesus, they um, uh, say they affirm the Bible, they claim to be saved, they claim to be on their way to heaven, and yet, watch this, there's no change in their life. There's no growth. They believe, and yet their life after they believed doesn't look any different than their life before they believed. Maybe you know someone like that. They aren't living for God at all. They believe, but they aren't interested in following Jesus. What do we think about that? Well, the Bible gives us more help in James chapter 2, where James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Now, now I think he's being sarcastic there. <laughs> Congratulations! Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is contrasting two kinds of Christianity. He's contrasting two kinds of faith. There's a true, genuine faith that saves... And there is a dead, worthless, counterfeit, demonic faith that doesn't save, and I'm calling it demonic because that's what James calls it. And today, widespread in our culture and and filling the pews in many churches are people who have nothing more than demonic faith, people who would affirm true things. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in the Bible. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died for sins. And nevertheless, their Christianity is counterfeit. It will do nothing for them except send them to hell. It's a shallow, superficial, disingenuous faith. And, and, and how, how, do we, how do we know this? We, we know this, James teaches us, because there is not a, uh, there's not a life of godliness, a life of works that are flowing from that faith, and so they are in no better position than demons. Now, make no mistake, I don't want to be misunderstood because sometimes people trip up on James too. I I want this heard loud and clear. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works. We are saved through faith and not through works, but faith works. Did you catch that? Faith works. In other words, works are the natural outflow of genuine faith. Here's how I like to say it. Faith is at the root of your salvation, and works are the fruit of that salvation. Faith's the root, works are the fruit. The works don't save, and the works don't bring you eternal life. No more than the fruit on a tree is the source of life. The fruit on a tree is not the source of life. It's the evidence of life that's already there. And so, if belief is present, but works are not, if belief is present, but you couldn't care less about submitting to Jesus, then you have to ask, what kind of belief is that? Is that real Christianity or counterfeit? Because y'all, demons believe. Demons know the gospel is true. Demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have demons in the Gospels identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Demons have better theology than many professing Christians. 
and yet their destiny is hell. And so is the destiny of every person who persists in that same kind of dead belief. That's why, that's why Peter is warning Simon about hell. There's no, there's no transformation in Simon's life. Simon believes, but Peter says in verse 23, I see you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Now that's, that's, that's emphatic in the Greek text. It could, be, it could be translated, I see you are being still in. You're still, you're still this way, Simon. You haven't changed at all, Simon. You're in the gall of bitterness. Gall of bitterness. What is that? That language is taken from Deuteronomy 29 and it's talking about people who are in the stranglehold of idolatry. When he says in bondage to iniquity, that comes from Isaiah 58 uh, and and that means being in bondage to sin, held captive by sin. You're still, still, Simon, held in captivity by your idolatry and you're still bound up in sin. His heart truly hasn't been changed. He, He is exactly now what he was in the beginning a man seeking to acquire power and glory for his own sake. And he's exposed as a false believer with a counterfeit Christianity. So we learn through Simon that there is a belief that does not save, it's counterfeit. The second mark of of counterfeit Christianity is relying on religious works that do not save. Relying on religious works that do not save. Now now someone could take my, my first point and totally misapply it. They may say, okay, Deemer says, Good works flow from faith, and so I'm going to start throwing in a few more good works. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'll go to church more often. Maybe I'll even give a little more money. Be a little bit more religious, and that'll do the trick. But relying on any work you do is anti-gospel and also a form of counterfeit Christianity. Paul declares in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Again, in Christianity, good works and religious acts are meant to be the natural overflow and outflow of genuine saving faith that's already present in the believer's life. Christians don't work to get saved. Christians work because they're already saved. But if genuine faith is not there, any religious work you do is pointless in regards to salvation. Religious works did nothing for Simon. The Bible says that Simon was baptized. He's baptized, publicly identifying himself with Christ. And Peter doesn't say to Simon, well, Simon, I know what you're doing is awful, and I know your heart's not right before God, but man, whew, I am glad you were baptized. I'm glad you went under the water. That's your ticket out of hell, man, so don't worry about it. You're good. You're all set. No, it's not what Peter does. Again, it goes back to what's going on in the heart. Simon's heart is not right with God. So when he got baptized, all that happened was is that he got wet. A little cleaner now, physically. Simon thinks being baptized and outwardly identifying with the church is sufficient. It's not. Raw religious works disconnected from a heart that loves and submits to Jesus is useless. Jesus says in Matthew, Jesus in Matthew 7 foresees a day when many are going to stand before Jesus on judgment day and say, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's going to be a terrifying day for some on that final day of judgment. I cannot think of any worse words to hear than those from Jesus. This idea of depending on your outward works to save while neglecting the disposition of your heart is also extremely rampant in our culture and in our churches today. Get baptized, read your Bible, be religious, go to church, pray the prayer, and accept Jesus. Trust in the decision that you made when you were six years old at a Bible camp. If you've done one of those things or all those things, you're good. But to rely on those things is a form of counterfeit Christianity because it's very possible to be outwardly religious but corrupt in your heart. Isaiah addresses this problem in the Old Testament, writing to people who are way more religious than Simon ever was. And yet God was not impressed by their religiosity. God says in Isaiah 29, 13, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Jesus 
elsewhere talks about the Pharisees who were hyper-religious and he accuses them of cleaning the outside of the cup, looking really impressive and, and awesome and shiny on the outside, and yet inside their hearts are full of corruption. And consider Paul. Paul was one of the most religious people in the Bible, and before he was saved, he was the master of being religious. He could out-religious everybody. And in Philippians 3, Paul gives his impressive religious resume, and he tells us what the value of his religious deeds were apart from, his, apart from Christ and his life. And he says in Philippians 3, 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he goes on to say, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, them being his religious resume, count them as rubbish, rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Yes, genuine saving faith produces works, but not mindless religious works. It it instead produces a heart that counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. True saving faith is a heart that is moving closer and closer to God. Simon may have honored God with his lips. Simon may have gotten baptized. Simon may have identified with the Samaritan church, but his heart was far from God, so his profession and his baptism were worthless. If your outward religious works are not flowing from genuine faith deep down in your heart, if you're just faking it on the outside and you're inwardly corrupt, sooner or later, sooner or later, that will be exposed. And what's really in your heart is eventually going to rise to the surface. In Simon's case, it happens sooner rather than later, which leads to the third mark of counterfeit Christianity, which is an enthusiasm for Jesus that does not save. An enthusiasm for Jesus that does not save. Simon's excited about Jesus. He's enthusiastic about Jesus. But why? That's the question. What is it that Simon is particularly enthralled by? Look look at verse 14 with me. It says, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not... By the way, he had not. Who's the he there? The Holy Spirit. Another, another proof text here for the, the deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit. So they, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll get to Simon in just a moment, but let me pause for a second. Some of you might ask, legitimately, this is a legit legit question, how can it be that the Samaritans believe and don't immediately receive the Holy Spirit when the Bible clearly says that everyone who believes has the Holy Spirit? Think about 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Romans 8 says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of God isn't even a Christian. So, how do you have Samaritan Christians in Acts 8 not having the Spirit? Well, dealing with that fully would take its own sermon. (laughs) But suffice to say for now, for our purposes, that we should remember that Acts is a transitory period in the history of redemption. God's doing something brand new. It was a unique time in history. And some of the things happened during this time were unique and unrepeatable, like having living apostles and prophets laying down the foundation of the church, or Jesus dying on the cross and being raised. That was a unique, unrepeatable time in redemptive history. As we think about the Spirit coming upon the Samaritans in Acts 8, It's very helpful to remember that Acts constantly emphasizes the glorious fact that all people, not just Jewish people, but all people can become a part of the people of God. Remember Acts 2 and the reference to Joel's prophecy where God said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, meaning that there would be redeemed, spirit-powered believers from all people groups all language groups, all tribes, the kingdom of God 
is international, multi-ethnic, and multilingual. And this was a very revolutionary thought to many ethnocentric first century Jews who despised non-Jews and had a sense of superiority over others. Uh, for, for the Jews, they saw the Samaritans as part Jew, part Gentile, half-breed heathens. And so, it is noteworthy, y'all, it is noteworthy when the word reached the Jerusalem church that the Samaritans were believing in Jesus. And, and when they hear about that, they send two apostolic representatives, Peter and John, to confirm this. And when the Spirit comes upon the Samaritans, probably with the visible supernatural manifestation of the gift of tongues like we see with the Jewish believers in Acts 2, that becomes proof positive. It becomes visible evidence and confirmation that, yeah, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is so beyond us. The gospel really is for everyone. And it's important that you've got two authoritative apostolic representatives and witnesses Peter and John, they're there for this event, giving it credibility and formal apostolic approval so that the the Jewish Jerusalem church can know that, guess what? Yes, even Samaritans are becoming part of the people of God. And so a visible manifestation of the Spirit coming upon first a crowd of Jews in Judea in Acts 2, and then to the Samaritans in Samaria in Acts 8, And later we'll see the same thing happen to full-blown Gentiles in Acts 10. Guess what pattern that follows? Follows the Acts 1-8 mandate. Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts here, God is doing something in an unusual and special way at the dawn of the church to visibly and powerfully demonstrate that all of these groups should now be regarded is one people in Christ. Well, Simon sees this outward demonstration of the Spirit's power coming upon people, and he is excited. He is as enthusiastic as all get out. But why is he enthusiastic? Why is he so excited about this? Is it that that his fellow Samaritans are being forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God through the gospel? No. Remember, Simon was an unemployed sorcerer who used to be at the center of everyone's attention. But Simon now is out of business. People are are, are leaving him and they're becoming Christians. And it seems like Simon's attitude in all this is, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And after Simon joins them, he looks for a way to get back into his exalted position. He looks for a way to be a superstar again. He looks for a way to get that magic business going again, and he thinks he's found a way. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was, giving, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit too. Give me that power. I got a lot of money simple business exchange. And now we know why Simon is so enthusiastic. It's all about power. Simon, like other sorcerers, would have believed that you could manipulate spirits by saying secret incantations, performing certain rituals, casting certain spells, and that this knowledge could be learned. It could be learned. And Simon wants to learn this power. These these apostles, they know stuff that I don't know about power. I need to find out about this secret knowledge, this secret power that they have. This is exactly why Simon became a Christian. This is why he became baptized. This is why he followed Philip around and followed the apostles around. Simon was drawn to the power. Simon's interest and enthusiasm about Jesus was totally wrapped up in God doing for Simon whatever Simon wanted him to do. Simon wanted to control and manipulate God for his own ends. That's a very sorcerer-like thing to do, to to tap into the spirits and, and, and access their power and control them. Now, 
Here's the thing. It's easy for us to distance ourselves from that. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a wizard. <laughs> this has nothing to do with me. But Simon's problem is what every single person in this room has struggled with. It all comes down to a power struggle. Who is sovereign? Who is in control? Who is really on the throne? And who is submissive to whom? And this power struggle has influenced the contemporary evangelical culture more than we think. It even influences how we preach the gospel, right? It influences why we tell people to come to Christ. Come to Christ and he'll heal your disease. Come to Christ and he'll fix your marriage. Come to Christ, he'll help you to be successful. There's a problem with that kind of approach. And that problem is powerfully illustrated in John chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching the people. And they get hungry. And Jesus takes a tiny bit of food and he multiplies it. Just creating food out of nothing. And he multiplies it and multiplies it until thousands of people are fed. And do you remember what the people's reaction was to that? Absolutely excited! Free food! That got some of y'all, y'all's attention. <laughs> remember, this is a society where if you want food, you just don't go to Kroger or, or Chick-fil-A, except on Sunday, and pick up a few things. Back then, getting food was hard work. It was always a constant struggle, especially for those who were poor, which would have been the majority of people that Jesus was talking to. And so here, Jesus is miraculously creating bread, and these people are pumped up. You want to talk about enthusiasm for Jesus? <clears throat> these people... We're so excited that, that John tells us that they tried to force him to be their king. To be their king. They will worship this man. They will believe in this man. They will follow this man. They will do anything this man wants them to do as long as he provides them with what they want. But Jesus didn't do this miracle to merely feed bellies. The purpose of signs and wonders is to point people to Christ and to teach people something important about Him beyond the actual miracle. That's why, the, that's why miracles often are called signs. What's a sign? A sign, ultimately the, the point of a sign is not to point to itself, to get attention to itself, but to point to a reality beyond itself. And if all you're doing is paying attention to the sign, you've missed it. If all you're doing is admiring the, the beautiful red stop sign and the, and the, and the font and, and all that, and you're just getting into it, you're going to have some problems in a, a few seconds. If all you're doing is paying attention to the sign and not thinking about the reality of the sign is pointing to. And in the feeding of the 5,000, in this sign, Jesus was not teaching, come to me and I'll be your sugar daddy. Not, not the point. Jesus took their physical hunger and satisfied it with physical bread to point them to something even more important. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus is saying that there is a need that you have that is more significant than your need for physical bread. You have a soul hunger and a soul thirst. And just like physical bread and drink can satisfy physical hunger and thirst, so I, the bread of life, can satisfy your deepest needs. And just as your body will die, if you do not have physical bread, you will spiritually perish forever if you do not partake of me. So the point is, is that it's not just, in, it's not just about enthusiastically coming to Jesus, so many people do that. It's about coming to him for life. Coming to him not for physical bread, but coming to him as bread, as the drink, as the soul satisfier. Coming to Jesus 
for Jesus. Period. What a novel idea. Come to Jesus just for Jesus. And when Jesus stops offering physical bread and he offers himself, do you remember how the crowds responded then? What happened to their excitement balloon? John chapter 6, verse 66 says that after that, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. They were initially interested in Jesus. They enthusiastically came to Jesus. They believed in Jesus. But it was a counterfeit belief. And as soon as Jesus didn't do for them what they thought he should do for them, they turned around and they walked away from him. Forget it. Forget this, Jesus. In Acts 8, Simon sees the power of the Spirit. He hears the Word. He believes. He's baptized. He's enthusiastic about God. He's excited about God. He's ready to follow God. He comes to Jesus, and as soon as God does not deliver, Simon's gone. You never see him again in the whole Bible. After Peter gives Simon that terrifying warning of hell, Simon doesn't repent. Did you notice that? Did you think his response was kind of weird? <clears throat> All he says is, well, pray for me. That, that bad stuff doesn't happen to me. He doesn't want judgment, but he also doesn't want Jesus as Lord. <laughs> so he's out of there. We're not sure exactly what happened to Simon after that. There, there's some writings from some early church fathers like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus who, who say that Simon goes on to become a heretic and an enemy of Christianity. Uh, there, there are some stories that link Simon with one of the early founders of Gnosticism, which was a major problem in the early church. And of course, what's Gnosticism all about? It's acquiring secret knowledge, esoteric knowledge. That, that's believable as far as the possibility that that's the direction that Simon went. We, we won't know for sure until Judgment Day, but friends, there are... There are many people who come to Christ for the perks and not for the Savior. They come to Him for what they think they should get out of life. And, 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 and folks, lest I be misunderstood, there's nothing wrong with wanting and praying for healing. <clears throat> there's, nothing in, there's nothing wrong with, with praying for a fixed marriage or to be successful in your business. You, you should be praying for those sorts of things. And Jesus can do all kinds of incredible things in your life in response to those prayers. So pray away. But here's the problem. What if you come to Christ and Jesus doesn't give you miraculous bread? What if you come to Christ and he doesn't heal your illness? What if you come to Christ and your spouse ends up leaving you? or your business fails and you end up penniless. What then? I'll tell you what then. If those were the primary reasons you came to Christ, you are going to do what Jesus' counterfeit followers did at the end of John 6. You're gonna throw up your hands and say, no bread? Then no Jesus. I'm out of here. You're gonna quit. For those bread-chasing disciples in John 6, for Simon in Acts 8, and for many today, Jesus is merely a means to an end. I will embrace Jesus because Jesus will help me get dot, 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 dot. It's counterfeit Christianity. The problem is not limited to them. It's something that we all struggle with, right? Even genuine saved, blood-bought, eternally secure Christians can stumble and be tempted to flirt with counterfeit Christianity. Let's get real, y'all. I'm, I'm tempted to struggle. I'm tempted to fall into that. We're all tempted to love what is at the master's table more than we love the master. And, and part of the Christian walk 
is a lifelong process of being increasingly weaned off of our attraction to counterfeits and increasingly learning to be satisfied in the real thing. So forgive me, God, for that continued struggle in my own life. But thanks be to God that for believers, we are moving out of that, we're growing out of that, we're learning through all of that. There's another challenge in Acts 8 for Christians, and that is that we've got to come to grips with the reality that there are false professors, counterfeit Christians. John Calvin makes an interesting comment on this. He writes that, in short, we cannot avoid this unfortunate experience of wicked and deceitful men sometimes joining themselves to us. Calvin goes on to say, If ever ungodly men cunningly worm their way in on us, proud critics unjustly charge us as if we were responsible for all their crimes. Nevertheless, Calvin says, we must be strictly on our guard against a facility which often brings a stain of disgrace to the gospel. And whenever we hear of great men having been deceived, we ought to be all the more cautious in our own attitude so as to not admit all sorts without discernment. Calvin here is talking about guarding the membership of the church. That's what he's talking about. Being careful of who you allow to join the fellowship. There are some churches that they don't care who joins, as long as they sign up and give money. (laughs) Hey, he says he's into Jesus, so let's let him in. And if that person is a celebrity, (laughs) well then... Of course we're going to immediately receive them as a member, never mind their doctrine, never mind all the red flags, that their heart is in the wrong place, never mind there's no evidence whatsoever of fruits. Christians just just get so starry-eyed, so easy, because we want cultural credibility, which is why we fall all over ourselves when a celebrity may have received Jesus. I'm not saying be all like cynical or whatever. Like when, when I hear a report about a celebrity receiving Jesus and an and, and, and interest in the things of God, I praise God for that. But sometimes churches can be very loosey-goosey in regards to whom they receive as brothers and sisters without any kind of examination or scrutiny. We have to be careful there. Simon was the biggest celebrity in Samaria. He was on the cover of all the magazines in the checkout stores, (laughs) or checkout line in the grocery stores. Everybody knew who he was. What What a boon for the church Simon would be. He'll give us the credibility we need with the culture. John Calvin points out that even Philip thought Simon was okay. It took, it took the Apostle Peter to recognize what was really going on, and it needs to be called out. Peter wasn't enamored by celebrity. He was concerned for the soul of Simon and the purity of the church. Can you imagine the damage that would have been wreaked in the Samaritan church had Simon been received as a member? Had he rose to a position of, of leadership and authority? Become an elder? We can't know someone's heart. And we don't have the same kind of supernatural insight that the apostles had, but we can see fruit, and by their fruits you will know them. And sometimes the best thing and the most loving thing you can do for a church and for a person is to say, you claim you're a Christian. You're not living as a Christian. Repent now or perish. And Acts 8 is a powerful reminder that not everyone who says they have an interest in Christ actually has Saving faith in Christ. People can have the appearance of being genuine at first glance, but as you look closer, there are things that are just off, and you see evidence of a counterfeit, and it must be called out. Now, I do believe there's a place for immature Christians, genuine Christians, saved Christians, but they're immature. They're struggling with a certain sin. But in other aspects of their life, there's fruit. There's evidence that there's life that's there. With some Christians, you have to look really hard, like with a magnifying glass, but you'll see something. You'll see some fruit, 
But then there are those where they say they believe in Jesus, but they are exactly the same person that they were before they received Jesus. And yet the Bible says that anyone who's in Christ is a what creation? It's a new creation. There should be something new there. But Simon, it was the same old Simon. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to heed the warning of Simon and counterfeit Christianity. You may have some sort of interest in Jesus, but if there are things that you ultimately love and want more than Jesus and you are obsessed with getting those things and all Jesus is is simply a tool for you to get those things, but Jesus really doesn't matter, you just see him as a means to an end, any, any, any means would work, but, but we'll just try Jesus and see what that does. If, that, if that's you, it will not end well for you if you persist in that. Jesus said whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And only by losing your life, which means giving up your old life and dreams and desires and agenda for the sake of something better in Christ, only then will you find true life and peace and joy. And to do that takes faith. And the essence of real genuine faith is coming to Christ for Christ's sake, for His sake. Faith sees Jesus not as a means to an end, but as the end, the goal. Faith sees Jesus not as a genie to get you physical bread or other treasures. Genuine faith sees Jesus as the bread, as the treasure, to the point where even if I run out of physical bread and starve to death, Jesus is my bread and my soul is satisfied in him because man does not live by bread alone. Even if my marriage doesn't get fixed, I will grieve, I will have sorrow, But even in the sorrow, Christ is my ultimate prize and joy, and I still have gain. Even if my business fails and I am penniless, I know that Christ is my ultimate treasure. Better to be poor and have Christ than be rich and not know him. And even if Jesus does not heal my disease, well, let me read to you what John Piper said on the eve of his surgery for prostate cancer in an article called Don't Waste Your Cancer. He writes this, you will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Satan's and God's designs in your cancer are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. Cancer does not win if you die, it wins if you fail to cherish Christ. God's design is to wean you off the breast of the world and feast you on the sufficiency of Christ. It is meant to help you say and feel, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And to know that, therefore, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The reason why counterfeit Christianity is worthless is because it values other things instead of Jesus. If Jesus is the supremely and infinitely valuable treasure, then anything else, no matter how good, if it replaces Jesus, is worthless. And this supremely satisfying treasure you can't buy. Simon tried to buy the gift of God with money. But to have the treasure that is Christ in your life, you can't pay for it. You can't earn it. Christ already paid for and earned what you needed when he died on the cross. The thing that keeps you and me from having and experiencing the treasure that is Christ is our own stubborn sin. And Jesus died to pay the price for sin. He bore God's wrath in the place of sinners so that all who repent of their sin and receive him have those sins pardoned and forgiven. And so friend, please know that the treasure found in Christ is not something you buy. It is a gift to be received by faith. And that gift is priceless. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that in a world of counterfeit pleasures and counterfeit treasures that bound up in Jesus Christ is the real thing. All of the treasure and all of the pleasure that we could possibly need is found in Christ. And Father, forgive us for 
turning away from that. Forgive us for our moments of unbelief where we don't believe that, where sometimes we believe that watching television is more of a treasure than Jesus Christ. Forgive me for that, O God. Have mercy on us. Father, open our eyes more and more so that we might more and more clearly see the beauty and the value and the superior treasure that Jesus is. Continue, Father, for those of us who are believers already, continue to wean us off of those lesser treasures and on more and more to Christ. For, for those this morning, anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ at all, and their whole life is bound up in chasing after other things and, and using Jesus as a means to an end, Father, help them to repent of that kind of idolatry and help them to find true life in you as they place their faith in you. Help us all to come to Jesus for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.